You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holfe, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. It has been far too long, my friends, since I've released a podcast episode and I must repent of that. So those of you who have been so kind enough to stick it out with me here over the last, well, it's been a month and a half since I last released one. Um, I don't have too many excuses other than work was pretty overwhelming and now I've got my feet out from, well, I've got my feet underneath me once again and so I am excited to get back behind the mic uh, interviewing my amazing colleagues across the country and releasing it all to you here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Now, whether you're listening through iTunes or you've gone to the Canadian Immigration Podcast.com website, um, I would uh, encourage you to subscribe. And also, if you have an opportunity to leave a review, it also helps the podcast to get out there to the masses so that everyone who is interested in Canadian immigration, law, policy, and practice can also tune in. Now, um, lots has happened since the last time I released uh, a podcast. We've had our National Canadian Bar Association Immigration Conference in Toronto, and that was phenomenal. It was awesome. And I've invited a number of the speakers who uh, had an opportunity to present at that conference to come and share some, maybe some different takes or some insights that maybe they weren't able to share at the conference. Uh, because here in our part, on my podcast, we can pretty much say whatever we want. <laughs> so there's no filter. People ha- are completely free. Well, I guess there is a little bit of a filter. It has to, it has to be relatively um, clean. But the reality is we can talk about things in a little bit of a different, more personal, intimate way here on the podcast than maybe you can uh, presenting at a national immigration conference. So I have uh, invited a number of those speakers to join me and a lot of them have graciously accepted. So I'm really excited about that. I'm in the process of recording a few more. But this episode, I just had to bring back Carter Hoppy, And many of you will already know Carter. Uh, he is just an amazing uh, individual, so colorful, so just, he, he's just a character. And I, I, you know, when I say that in the best possible way, he's just fun to be around. He's got great insights. He's extremely intelligent. And I love his thoughts on where immigration is going and, and just the, the wealth of stories that he shares. And I, I reiterate that a lot on this podcast, at least in this episode, how much I appreciate the anecdotal stories that uh, that Carter shares, and he definitely brought it again to this topic. Now, back in Season 2, Episode 2, Carter discussed with me some of the investor programs, and as many of you are aware, he resides in Dubai, well, in, uh, in the UAE. I better get that straight. And so um, I think Dubai is where he, his office is located. And with that, he has a unique perspective on this whole immigration process. 
And back in season two, episode three, I had the opportunity to connect with Chantelle Deloge and we talked about Canadian permanent resident status and basically what everybody essentially covered, what everybody needs to know about it. And uh, in particular with an emphasis on retaining your status. Well, Carter, um, we're also going to talk about the, the retention of permanent resident status, but also the fact that many of his clients, um, they've kind of got one foot in each country. And so we talked a lot a lot about strategies that were focused and directed on these people who are trying to figure out if they should stay in Canada or go. And uh, it's interesting, Carter and I, we were talking about um, uh, one of the best lead songs we could have for the podcast. And uh, Carter had identified uh, by The Clash, should I stay or should I go? And um, I tried... I tried really hard <laughs> to to get that song to put on the podcast, but it's a freaking nightmare. I, I even reached out to Sony directly to see what it would cost. But unfortunately, folks, although um, I would love to have that song be the lead in to our podcast today, I wasn't about to pay, well, starting $500 <laughs> to register the song. I know that um, the Borderlines podcast with uh, Stephen Murins and, and, uh, and Peter and Deanna, they have um, at times the songs that they've got on there. So I'm going to have to ask them um, how they went about it and if there was a cheaper way of doing it because my avenue didn't work very well. Anyways, you can imagine The Clash and you can go and, and uh, just search it up on iTunes or listen to it on YouTube, but uh, should I stay or should I go now? And that, that song's perfect lead in for this podcast. So um, without further ado, uh, let's jump into the podcast with Carter Hoppy. Well, everyone, I have the absolute pleasure of having Carter Hoppy join me on my podcast for a second go round. Welcome, Carter. Thank you very much, Mark. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the detailed background of Carter, I'd encourage you to go back to season two, episode two. Um, but Carter is one of the founding members of our National Immigration Section of the Canadian Bar Association and one of the uh, most interesting, colorful lawyers that you can get. And uh, his storytelling ability is really the part that I love the most. You know, when you've got as much experience as, as Carter does with Canadian immigration, there's no shortage of um, stories uh, to, to apply all of the various changes that we've seen in immigration to. So, uh, so we're, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I thought, well, uh, yeah, go ahead, Carter. Thanks for that introduction, Mark, but it sounds like I'm a hard act to follow. <laughs> you are. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about the challenge of main maintaining permanent resident status when you really have kind of a foot in, in two different countries. And, and as you will have learned, uh, those who listened to uh, episode two there, with Carter, he um, he actually maintains an office in um, in Dubai, and he's practiced out of that office since 1994. He is, notwithstanding that, a certified specialist in Canadian immigration law with the Law Society of Upper Canada, and he's had that distinction since 1993. And so, you know, having the office located in Dubai, as well as um, you know, uh, being being a member of the Law Society of Upper Canada, and you know, that prevent, presents uh, Carter with some very interesting experiences, like I said, and a unique perspective 
that I wanted to pull him in to talk about our topic today. So, yeah, thanks for doing that, Carter. Well, thank you, Mark. Yeah, so I have been living in Dubai for, I guess, over 20 years now. <clears throat> and um, I do specialize in immigration law, not just Canadian immigration law, but any kind of outbound immigration or citizenship applications for people from the Gulf region. So they may wish to go to Canada, but they might also wish to go to the United States or the European Union. And my job is to help them. And I just have to correct you a bit. I was a certified immigration law specialist by the Law Society of Upper Canada. But when I moved to Dubai and then a few years later tried to renew my certification, <laughs> they said they said I could no longer be a certified specialist because I wasn't in Ontario. Oh, my goodness. You I, know, I made, I made an objection, but it fell upon deaf ears. <laughs> I'll tell you, these the, the law societies across the country, sometimes just I just shake my head. Like, I just don't get it. In the world that we're in today, um, well, whatever. I bet you any money, I look back 20 years, you know, if I'm still around in 20 years practicing, and I know you probably will be too, but uh, in, in 20 years' time, if I'm practicing, I look back, I think the whole face of the the legal profession is going to be changed and, um, you know, the monopoly, I guess, if you will, that us as immigration lawyers hold on this whole industry, well, especially immigration law, I, I'll bet you any money that it's, it's gonna, we're going to see a whole different landscape. So, uh, yeah, it, and even without immigration, everything is changing. But the law societies hold, you know, just firmly to, to this concept that, you know, we cannot say that we're experts. We cannot say we are specialists. And so in Alberta, Carter, I... Restri I restrict my practice exclusively to immigration law. <laughs> so, by your by your choice. It's by my choice. And so, but that's no reflection that I have a clue what I'm doing or that I have any experience or that I can actually help people because, right. uh, yeah, they, it's, yeah, people are just going to have to hope I know what I'm doing, I guess. <laughs> well, at the concluding session of our recent uh, Bar Association yes. conference in Toronto, on June the, I guess it was June the 10th. Yes. Um, uh, With the was a very interesting, mm -hmm. Yes, that's yes. right. It was a very mm -hmm. interesting presentation. And he explained to us that there are forces over which we have no, no control, control that are moving into our space, our, our media space, our professional space. So, yeah, for sure, 20 years will be, who knows if we'll still be around. Exactly. And it's it's interesting because when I went down to the American Immigration Lawyer Association conference this past week in, in New Orleans, I actually uh, took some time and met with Reed Trouts and just talked to him a little bit oh. about a little about, uh, you know, his presentation. And I've gone to other ones that he's done in the past as the um, uh, he's the director of uh, the practice and professionalism um, section with, within AILA. And I had lots of discussions with him about this. And I think this is actually a, a really good topic for for future podcasts, uh, at right. least directed to our colleagues. And, you know, to a large extent, these these podcasts that, that I do are directed to them and anyone else that's interested. I, I know some of our our government colleagues also listen to the, the podcast as well and, and uh, offer suggestions and uh, and, you know, indicate when they like what I say and <laughs> also confirm right. if they don't necessarily agree. But that's okay. That's what's awesome about this podcast is it's, it is mine and we can say or do whatever we want. So that's what makes it fun. Um, I'm having fun. <laughs> awesome. 
All right. Well, let's let's dive into our topic a little bit. So, you know, there's this concept of, um, you know, bridging this transition between Canada and the country of last residence. And, and so obviously you've indicated that you assist, uh, you know, individuals, um, you know, in your geographic region with opportunities to go abroad. And as we know, sometimes uh, the opportunities in Canada are not quite as good as maybe they were uh, in the place that they left. And so then people get into this situation where they've got one foot in each country. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing in, in some of the, the experiences that you've had? Yes. And um, my perspective, of course, is rooted in the experience in the country of the United Arab Emirates. But I think it's probably... Um, more or less the same in other areas, people leaving China or, or India and going to Canada have <clears throat> no idea what they're getting into, <clears throat> excuse me, unless they've previously lived in the country. So it's always a cautious approach. And, you know, uh, years and years ago, you know, going back to the middle of the last century, people didn't fly into Canada or the United States. They got on a boat. Mm-hmm. And the boat landed in Halifax, and then you weren't going back. You know, you, there was very little possibility that you were somehow going to take the next boat back. But today it's all different. And so what happens is typically in my practice, one of these – I'm talking now about a typical married couple with children. And let's face it, not that many single people are seeking to immigrate to Canada in the first place. Mm-hmm. I find that my, 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 you know, single people in Dubai love being in Dubai. They are not thinking about going anywhere. They're having a great time. It's a tax-free jurisdiction. And, but then they get married and they have children. Now they're approaching their 30s, mid-30s, late-30s. And now, number one, it's difficult to qualify these days under express entry. But if they do, then they are attempting to move not just one person but the whole family. And they don't want to be in a position where there is no income coming into the family. So typically, they will land in Canada, and usually, the husband will go back to Dubai to resume his employment so that there will be at least one income coming into the family, while the, the, the spouse, the mother, and the children get settled. And then, often, depending on the age of the children, the wife or mother will get a job and then by that time the husband is growing lonely and disillusioned Mm -hmm. with life life by himself in Dubai and then he will join the family so it's a transition over many months couple of years sometimes and that's a typical cautious way to approach the complicated subject of immigration into uh, especially a modern society like fast-moving society like we have in the world today so that's what my that's who i deal with on a daily basis and i don't think the canadian government is reporting that accurately when they do their levels planning you know you get the levels report comes out every year and it says all right so we took in you know 302,000 immigrants last year so many were refugees i don't think they're going back so many were family class Uh, spouses some of them are in transition going back and forth by the way and a lot of them are skilled workers and we think oh well they're here to stay but it's not necessarily the case 
at least part of the family might be moving in a kind of a fluid situation. And, and quite frankly, it's often the case that the uh, main breadwinner, which is typically the male in this, in this uh, scenario that I'm presenting, won't be able to put in enough time over a five-year period to maintain the PR card. He'll, he will be in breach of the residency obligation. And sometimes that's uh, a result that wasn't intended. Sometimes it was intended. And you don't even know at the outset of a five-year period. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to be in the next five years. Do you, yes. Mark? No, huh? no. So, so, you know, what often happens is the husband, head of family, if you like, and from that sense, point of view, and many people in the Middle East, by the way, I know this sounds in a Canadian context rather uh, sexist, I suppose, but in the Middle East, it's still very much a man's world, believe me. And they often the head of the family is the man. He's making more money than, than his spouse, and he can't maintain permanent residence can permanent resident status in Canada because he can't spend 730 days here so what's he do mm -hmm. that's the question that's it right so sometimes if, if a client comes to me in time I will say well you should probably since you're in breach of the residency obligation anyway renounce your status you know wipe your PR slate clean and then reapply and of course the spouse in Canada can sponsor that person as a family class spouse, FC1. And then they'll be in Canada with an immigrant visa and start the whole PR card cycle all over again within a few, within a few months, really. It used to take quite a long time to get a, an FC1 approved, but these days it's usually less than a year. And that's what I was going to bring up. And that's the big, the, the real changer now. So there were times when it was taking over two years to get a, a spousal yeah. sponsorship completed. But now I just had one, actually, she was in, um, in Dubai and uh, the Canadian husband was here. We filed in the beginning of January and she is coming. She's landing July 2nd. Hello. So... Yeah, exactly. It's it, and and I think it even went to Manila, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the actual processing, and so, so yeah. So think of, so think about that. Now, if, if is that person going to stay in Canada? We don't know over a five year period. Maybe the, maybe the husband and the and the wife will leave, mm -hmm. and maybe they'll come back at some point in time. But what about double counting? You know, when my husband uh, slash father loses his status and is sponsored again by the the Canadian resident spouse he's counted twice in the levels plan because huh. he landed five years ago and now he's landing again but it's the same guy huh. so by taking a snapshot which is what the levels plan does it's giving a false impression in my view that all these people that are mentioned on that levels report are here to stay but very often they're not. So how do you, they're, you know, they're moving around. So, do you, that way. so how, how accurate do you think the data is that the government actually has the, the statistics on this? Oh, you, I'm sure, I'm sure they're counting the landings properly. Right. But, but the renunciations, that's the question. I, I've never seen in all the years that I've been, and I pay attention 
to the annual levels report. I've never seen loss of status, renunciation. It's never uh, mentioned, let alone given the accurate number. I'm mm. sure they could do it. Yeah. And don't forget, sometimes the person who has lost status is kind of drifting into that situation. They didn't intend to lose status. They didn't have a fixed plan. It just turned out that after a five-year period, actually, the critical time in any permanent resident cycle is the third anniversary after landing. Yes. Right? Because up until the third anniversary of landing, you cannot mathematically be in breach of the residency obligation. It's not possible. But in year four or year five, if you haven't started to put time in into your Canadian residence, then you're going to be in breach of the residency obligation. And some people don't do anything about it until it's kind of until their PR cards yeah. have expired. Right. Too late. For example. And then they'll do things like make a PRTD application, a permanent resident travel document application, thinking, oh, there's no problem, when there is a problem, and they'll be have their PR status canceled. And then that kind of looks bad on their record because it looks like they've been denied a PRTD. You know? hmm. So what they, what they should have done is apply for renunciation and a temporary resident visa uh, if they had been sort of thinking ahead, but often people aren't really thinking ahead. They're, as I say, I call it drifting. Yes. So, so practically speaking, Carter, how long does it take someone to go through that process of renunciation? Oh, it's, it, well, I don't know in other visa offices, but in the UAE, renunciation is quite simple. It takes a couple, three weeks, that sort of thing. Hmm. If you apply during Ramadan, it might take a little longer. <laughs> a little bit longer, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a good thing to do that. It's not, you know, some people are, oh, they, they, they regard it as some kind of, you know, uh, they're a bit ashamed of the fact that they've yes. breached the residency obligation. But it's not a crime. It happens every day of the week. Somebody is just not able to put in 730 days. Yeah. It simply means you're no longer a permanent resident unless, of course, you, here's the other complication. Unless, of course, you go into uh, Canada through the land border, which these days is a bit problematic with the uh, Muslim travel ban in the United States. Yes. But you can approach the Canadian border, even though you have an expired PR card, but you have your original COPR, Confirmation of Permanent Residence document, and you have a chance to say to a border officer, well, I've got a good reason why I wasn't here, and please accept my return on humanitarian and compassionate grounds, which is sometimes done. And even if it's not accepted, you have an appeal, right, to the Immigration Appeal Division of the Appeal Board. So, again, these types of statistics, to my knowledge, are maybe they're kept somewhere by IRCC, but they don't reveal them to us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the public should know, you know, who who's coming and who's staying, <laughs> like like the Clash song suggests. Yes, right? yes, <laughs> yeah. Should should I stay or should I go? So, for example, if your demographic um, science tells you that there should be 
300,000 immigrants coming into Canada for certain demographic reasons, you know, fertility rate, economic growth, uh, some kind of skills transferability, that sort of thing. Since the 300,000 that are coming in are not necessarily all staying put, maybe we should be taking in 380,000 mm-hmm. in order to net 300. But no one talks about that. So that's what I, I thought I'd talk about on this well, podcast. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, Minister Houston is listening very carefully. Yes. And yes. <laughs> he will now start to instruct his... Uh, Yes, the, the fine folks at IRCC That's to start right. tracking yeah. this information, That's thanks right. to the suggestion of, of the illustrious Carter Hoppy. That's so, right. Deputy Minister, exactly. I'd, like the, I'd like the statistics on loss of permanent resident status and renunciation on my desk tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes perfect sense. You've got some very, very valid points there. You know, obviously everything that we do is, is, is you know, they, they've got a rationale for it. And, uh, and so if you haven't really contemplated this reality and, you know, then it, it can have significant impacts over the long term if we're trying to meet certain, certain, you know, uh, our levels planning for trying to hit certain targets. So that makes perfect sense. It also has impacts in other areas of our society. For example, for a, a goodly portion of time, often say five years or even more, we have a family that apparently consists of a husband, a wife, and two children, but really, in Canada, it's the wife and two children. Hmm. So it's not exactly a single-parent family situation because they talk to Dad on Skype and Dad visits his office as he can, right? But it's, there's some, there are some strains that, and I've had clients have told me, that there's a strain involved, and that's why they had to change what, what they were doing. And, you know, the, the, the children didn't like it that dad wasn't around anymore so much. And that could have some kind of social repercussions, educational, you know. It, it's something that we should be aware of as a society and, and study it appropriately. So I'm sure, I'm sure that's not the only example, by the way. But yeah, we, we should take account of reality and then from that reality do the studies that we have to do to – account for it. That's all. Mm-hmm. So Carter, obviously what, what you're describing in the UAE is something that I think to a large extent, uh, has, has been seen in, in, you know, other countries, uh, Korea, China, where we had our investor programs and you and I, we talked a little bit about this concept of, you know, of, of, of the father with his, his business ventures and, and uh, you know, the work and the employment and the opportunities were still remaining in the home country, but mm. the opportunity to immigrate to Canada through one of Canada's old investor programs was there. And, you know, we talked a lot about the benefits, pros and cons, and, and you know, really unrecognized benefits that flowed from it. It wasn't just a situation of people you know, having no intention of, of coming to Canada and, and abusing the system. And we, you know, we, we covered that and I'd encourage our listeners to go back and listen to season two, episode two, because, because Carter, Carter brought up some just amazing um, insights that I think most people didn't really think about. But yeah, clearly we know this situation is happening in many countries all over the world. And sure. it's interesting too. Um, I have a, a little private express entry Facebook group and it's full of, I don't know, probably have 34,000 people that are a part of it now. 
But I get questions all the time about people in their residency and, and saying, okay, you know, I, I was nominated by the province of Nova Scotia and we're there now, but the opportunities, the job opportunities are not very great. You know, do I have to stay? You know, do I go somewhere else? You know, can I move to, you know, to, to British Columbia or, or to another place where there's more opportunities for my particular occupation? And, you know, it's hard for me because usually I tell them, well, that spot was precious and you were brought in to, to actually, you know, help and contribute and make the province better and to increase the, you know, the outlook of the province and contribute. And, uh, you know, by, by going there and then leaving the day after, and obviously, you know, some people do that, but the vast majority do try to give it a good try. You know, there's a lot of similarities between that and new immigrants. And a lot of immigrants, uh, there's feedback on, on, on this, this Facebook group um, where they say, you know, that are already in Canada, but are, are, have gone on to share their, you know, experience with, with those who are yet to come and say, you know, it's, it's hard to find a job. And, you know, it, it takes time and the opportunities aren't quite as great. And obviously in, in the way our economy is right now, uh, you know, there are fewer opportunities uh, for someone who's just newly immigrated to Canada, let alone the whole foreign worker world. But, right. you, know, you know, this this is not, uh, you know, this isn't the situation that you're describing here, um, you know, from with individuals from the UAE. It, it covers all aspects of, of, of what we do. And so it's not unusual to think that someone would come, land, and then say, you know what, we still have to pay the bills, and then to right. leave. And so how do you advise your clients in these situations? Do you, do you talk about these things right up front, knowing that there's, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know, there is a likelihood that, you know, dad in, in, in the situation, you know, the, the geographic region that you're in is, is going to need to hold down employment there to help get the family settled, notwithstanding the, the, this concept of, of maintaining, um, you know, uh, settlement funds enough to get yourself established, but you know, how do you advise people? Do you, do you be proactive or you just kind of wait till they, you know, they then contact you about the three and a half year mark and say, Oh, Oh, no, no, I'm very proactive. And most of my clients, I should say a good 80% of my clients have already figured out that it's not going to be a bed of roses when they get off the airplane. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they've researched it on the internet. They've talked to their friends and relatives who preceded them, who've told them how difficult it is to make the transition. You know, Canadian experience, you know, uh, helps get a job as opposed to somebody with no Canadian experience. Yes. That's kind of a subtle, it's not as bad as it used to be, mm -hmm. where people were like actively discriminate, discriminated against, but mm -hmm. it's there. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a real thing. And also, there's ageism also, again, uh. because... The people who come to me typically, first of all, to be able to afford me, they have to have been working for a while and have some savings. Mm -hmm. And But more than that, in order for them to be motivated to come to Canada, they have to normally, as I say, most of my clients are young families. But young families are old, according to the express entry system, yes. and also for, for the PNPs by and large as well. So I say to my, I don't have to enlighten my clients. I, we sort of have a conversation in, in which it's clear that they know that it's, let's put it this way, they don't buy family of four, husband, wife, two kids. They don't buy four one-way tickets. Yes. Okay? They do not do that 
because they know it's great likelihood. First of all, often the family comes as a unit, stays for a month in the summer of 2017, looks around, checks things out, looks at schools, look at transportation routes, job opportunities, and go back to Dubai or wherever they're from, and then they make the real decision, am I actually going to go ahead with this, right? Mm. A, lot of people who, a lot of people who land, land, spend some time in Canada, a month, two months, six months, and then never go back to Canada. And again, those, the data on those people is not being captured by the government. We think everybody who lands is staying, staying put. It's not true. It's totally not true. Uh, it's, it's just the opposite, quite frankly. Most people who land, most people, not all people, but most people who land, take a little time to, you know, uh, scope out the, the situation. Then they go back and make the true decision, am I actually going to go ahead with this or not? And then they would, you know, resign their position in Dubai or in Hong Kong or whatever and, and make plans to start, make the real move. Another thing is the timing. Don't forget, we give immigrants up to three years to make that decision. So even if someone who lands in, in 2017 does have a firm intention of staying, they might not actually act on that firm intention until 2020. And again, is anybody looking at that data? I don't think so. And so if you're talking about the province uh, having given, you know, uh, it's blessing to somebody to live in Nova Scotia, and they go there, and they it turns out it's not as rosy as they thought. I'm sure Nova Scotia doesn't want them going on welfare. I'm sure Nova Scotia would rather lose them to British Columbia than pay for their social assistance costs. On the other hand, some people treat the PNPs as a kind of oh, I can't qualify for express entry, so I think I'll trick a. PNP program into accepting me, and that's obviously fraud. Yes, right. So yeah. you have to, you have to, to in order to stay on the right side of the law, you have to give your province of destination a decent chance yeah, at settlement. You can't show up one day and leave the next. You know? But on the other hand, if it turns out that it's not the place for you, then you obviously don't want to stay there and and make everybody miserable <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree and you know what's interesting is is we've watched the evolution of express entry and i know this isn't necessarily right in our you know uh, in, in line with our topic today but when you look at the human capital factors you know how they reward individuals obviously age is a huge issue and um, I'm looking forward to October the 1st of this year when I officially become a zero for the purposes of express entry. Uh -huh. But, but you, you look at um, the high emphasis on age. So that's one factor for sure. And then above all, English language ability. And I, I compare this world with the old federal skilled worker world. And in the past, it wasn't impossible to, you know, to immigrate to Canada without a high level of English. And, um, 
And I think in those days, it, it was a little bit more difficult to integrate and to find that job. And, and you know, and that's where we had all of the taxi drivers, which interesting with the the world of Uber that we have now. Yeah. <laughs> Even those jobs are not going to be as plentiful. And so you, you think of how the government has really put a high emphasis um, on, on these human capital factors. And, uh, you know, it, it may be a little bit easier now to, to integrate than it used to be. Um, both from an economic standpoint as as well as a you know cultural and otherwise, but um, yeah, well, the, yeah, you, it's it's interesting. My personal take, and I I think there's probably some science somewhere to back it up. I think the only really solid factor in the uh, comprehensive ranking system is the language factor. I totally agree that without fluency in English or French, as the case may be, your chances of success are really diminished. A good friend of mine, from originally from Bangladesh, has two master's degrees in electrical engineering. And I caught up with him a few years ago. And he was working in Scarborough, Ontario, in a light bulb factory on the line making the light bulbs. Hmm. And he said to me, they're not recognizing my Bangladesh master's degree. And I said, no, no, that's not it. It's your English is not fluent. And that's why you're not going to get a decent job in the engineering field unless you can communicate fluently in English with your engineering counterparts at the, at the company or whatever place you're working. He now speaks English beautifully, by the way. Yes. And, that, and has a very good job. So that, that factor, I, I got, I get it. The age factor, I think the age factor puts too much emphasis on youth, but that's a bias of mine because mm-hmm. I'm being hired by people in their 30s, not typically in their. I have some clients in their 20s, yes. Mm-hmm. Clients who've seen the light, and uh, I guess, I, I mean, I've had actually some 25-year-olds come into my office and say, I want to go to Canada. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to stay here in the UAE. But that's not typical. No. And so, and so for example, I have a, a client who is a 27-year-old master's degree holder, has a degree from the UK. She's worked as a couple, for a couple of years in the finance industry. And she got through last year when the, it was hard to get Right. Uh, ex- ex- the comprehensive ranking system points up, to, up until recently, you had to have over 450. And she had over 450. Beautiful language scores, by the way. Mm-hmm. But how do we know that that young person who's got a couple of years of experience, A, is going to stay in Canada? How do we know she's not going to California? And, you know, don't forget, a lot of people go through Canada, get the citizenship of Canada, and now then they can go under NAFTA and start working where they really want it to be, which is in California or Florida or Texas, oh, right? That, you know what, Carter, I'm going to jump in there because I just got back from, uh, I, I met a firm in, in San Francisco. They do a lot of H-1B applications for Indian IT companies, but of yeah. course with the CAPS, you know, they may file an application for the same individual with with that company for five or six years or even longer and never, you know, never get drawn in, in right. that H-1B. And so one of the discussions we had was that there's a good chance these individuals um, 
would qualify through express entry. And uh, we talked about the possibility of, and maybe I shouldn't <laughs> be saying this in our podcast, but the possibility of using that as a vehicle to get them in the same time zone and then figure out what you're going to do. You know, they, they stay, they work, uh, you know, virtually um, for a large, well, to, you know, to a large point, they're, they're doing that anyways, but work virtually based out of Canada. And then when they do obtain citizenship, then they have options. And uh, well, what, when they obtain citizenship, they're not restricted to express entry. No. Because then they have NAFTA. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And that's the and that's the beauty of it. And then when it comes to jobs and everything, a lot of these individuals would qualify on human capital alone. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating thought process. But to really think about how many people are actually staying is the thing that, you know, any government official that's listening to this podcast, that's the data that I would love to see. Because yes, it's fine to determine who you want to be eligible, who you want to, to, to draw to Canada to fill our perceived needs. But what are we doing for them? You know, what, what exactly is Canada doing to encourage them to stay? And when our economy is overheated, like it was in Alberta through, oh, I guess 2005 through 2008 before the global crash, right. holy crap, like there was no, like it, there was not any employer in the whole province that, that, that could find people to adequately staff their operations, whether it was, sub, right. whether it was Subway, who, you know, who was closing at six o'clock in the evening because they couldn't find anyone to work, you know, the, the agriculture, you know, but it was trades. It was all industries. Obviously oil and gas was sucking everybody up North to Fort McMurray in that area. And so yeah. in those days, oh yeah, Canada was a land of opportunity, but it's not the case right now. And uh, so there's a lot of people that do come and then they're somewhat disillusioned about this Canadian dream. I think it would be very difficult, but not impossible to track these movements because you could at least make educated guesses on the basis of Canadian citizenship applications and whether the Canadian citizens were filing income taxes after they became Excuse me. After they became citizens. <laughs> yes, provided it isn't a consultant who's helping them to do that, right? <laughs> because, well, right. But <laughs> <laughs> the fraudulent kind I'm referring to, the guy who was yes. thrown in jail out in, in BC. <laughs> right. But so you've got this person who really wanted to get ultimately to the United States, couldn't get in because of their restrictive laws, comes to Canada because our express entry or formerly the FSW, Federal Skilled Workers System, was beneficial to that person. They come to Canada, they get citizenship after three years or four years for a while, and now it's going back to three years, and then they go to Florida or they go to Texas, and they stop paying income taxes. So can we can we find that person? Can we find out how many people are doing that? I don't know. Uh, maybe that's an impossible uh, task. Or maybe you have to take some kind of cohort study, you know, like maybe you have to ask, you know, 10% of the immigrants to who come to Canada to participate in a voluntary study mm-hmm. where every six months they would send in an email uh, reporting on what they've done. Are they still here? Do they like it? Do they get a job? Did they not get a job? Did they pay any income tax? Did they go to California? You know? Uh, if you, if we could find enough people to respond to such a 
voluntary study, maybe that would give us some answers. Mm -hmm. You know, hmm. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a social scientist. No, no, I, yeah, neither am I. This but, this speculation is is just that. <laughs> but huh. but I do know that the levels report gives a false uh, picture. Mm -hmm. Those three hundred thousand people who came in last year are not necessarily still here right now and they're not necessarily going to be here five years from now hmm. so i mean so, that's just reality yeah it is okay so you know i guess one question i have for you and i i definitely don't want to put you on the spot but i know how quick you are on your feet so do you have any recommendations for the government yeah, I think they should at least start talking to us about renunciations and loss of status. For sure. At least open up that picture, you know, that little window, so that people will understand that, hey, a bunch of these people that must have landed back in 2010 are no longer interested in being permanent residents. You know, as, as a start. Now, whether they can do... As I say, maybe it makes no sense to do what I just said about having some kind of a voluntary survey. But um, uh, but they there are smarter people in the government than me, and I think they should figure this out. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> and, you know, and you can't even use applications for PR card extensions as any kind of a baseline. Because, you know, if people do come in and they just decide they're never going to travel, well, they would never even extend, Right. And uh, although that's extremely rare in our world these days, but well, no, no, that's 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 you have to allow for that. Mm -hmm. Also, though, also though, in addition to renunciations and people who've lost their status at a visa office abroad, you should they should tell us about PR card renewal refusals. Yes, hey, that's a stat they could easily share with absolutely. us. Absolutely, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So. Well, this is great. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, this, you know, this whole discussion that we've had here. Usually, you know, when I have uh, guests on, we our, our discussions tend to be a little bit more substantive. You know, kind of almost a how-to and what to avoid and things like that. But you've posed some some great questions, and I hope I hope that people are listening to this because I think it has a significant impact on the direction that we're going. And every year, they, our, our dear Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada asks us to provide input on levels planning and things to, you know, suggestions. And I've never personally done that. But I think this is, is something that they, they really do need to look at. Because your, your, your suggestion that maybe, you know, that the 302,000 or whatever we have in terms of levels planning, maybe that's not enough. If, if they're using that data and assuming, making those assumptions that every single person is staying, or at least the vast majority, well, it could be, you know, it could be seriously flawed. So, well, and here's another thing. I don't know that they are making that assumption. Yeah. They don't tell us what yeah, their maybe, assumptions maybe they are. are. Maybe they're already assuming. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I, my point is the average Canadian who, if there is one who reads the, I mean, how many average Canadians read the levels report? But yeah. if, if this mythical average Canadian was reading the levels report, I think she would get the idea that those people are here to stay and it's just not the case. Yeah. Right. So yeah. 
maybe we can consider this podcast as our contribution to levels planning. There we go. That is exactly <laughs> it. I'll make sure that I send a copy to our minister and, and to, uh, to our prime minister as well. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll let it go from there. Well, this okay. is, well, this is great, Carter. I really appreciate the time that you took to come and join me. And if people want to reach you, obviously, um, as, uh, yeah, as a as a, a practitioner, obviously in the UAE, but I'm sure you, like many of us, um, get clients from all over the world. Um, what's the best way to reach you? Email is the best way, Mark. It's Carter Hoppy at CarterHoppy dot com. That's C A R T E R H O P P E at CarterHoppy dot com. Awesome. That sounds great. Thanks so much, Carter. You take care, and and I understand you're getting ready to head back home here shortly too. Yes, it's bloody hot there. I'm not looking forward to it. <clears throat> All right. Well, you stay it's, cool it's, then. <laughs> it's been a deliciously cool June. I've really enjoyed it. And so now I have to pay for it by going to a very hot place in July. Well, after uh, 20 years, I'm sure you have found ways to cope. So, <laughs> so st- yeah, stay indoors. Yes, stay, stay cool. All okay. right. Thanks so much. Okay, Mark. Bye. Well, I think you can all see why I brought Carter back on. His episodes are are awesome, and it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, but I think it's just the fact that he has been practicing in this area of law for so long that he brings a very unique perspective. You know, he can he has seen how everything has evolved over time, and that, you know, kind of coupled together with his practical experience representing clients just provides a really unique perspective. And I'm so grateful for Carter and the time that he took to come and join us. And uh, even the perspective that he offered with respect to permanent residents and how we just don't know how many are actually staying. And so um, I don't require, uh, you know, I don't recall anything from IRCC uh, statistically speaking, where they've released that information. Sure, we know that the levels planning um, is is set to allow, you know, slightly over 300,000 new immigrants each year. But as Carter so um, eloqu- eloquently identified, we don't know how many are actually staying. And I'm sure that it's got to be taken into consideration, but we just don't know. And there's a real you know, there is a lack of transparency with what happens behind the, uh, um, you know, behind the curtain when it comes to immigration. And so if there are any immigration uh, officers out there listening to this that know whether or not this data is actually kept, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to mholthe, so M-H-O-L-T-H-E at stringham.ca, S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M.ca. And let me know if you guys actually keep these statistics because, um, as Carter also identified, the general population here in Canada, the general populace, they just see in the levels planning, oh, over 300,000, and they just assume that they're all here. And so when you're looking at a large number like that, in Canadian terms, at least looking historically, we have never had numbers as high as that, um, it puts it into context if you know there's 20% of them that ultimately never stay. So I'd love to see those statistics. And if anyone has them and they want to send them to me via email, that would be fantastic. Um, I guess it's possible to do an ATIP, but uh, it seems like, well, it's just really uh, an interesting scenario to think about. So um, yeah, so 
I want to express appreciation to all of you who have stuck with the podcast over this last little stretch and also coming back from the, the National um, Canadian Bar Association's Immigration Conference in Toronto a few weeks back. Um, I was shocked at how many people actually listened to this. So I'm a little embarrassed that I've waited a month and a half to get a new episode out. Uh, but I have a fantastic lineup of new guests that are going to be coming on um, to join me and share some fabulous insight. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's surprising who actually listens to the podcast. And so if you do, give me a shout out. Like I love to receive emails. I love to receive feedback, um, even suggestions for topics. And some of the border officers have been very kind enough, and you know who you are, to offer me suggestions. And, and uh, one of the topics in particular that I will be covering in upcoming upcoming episodes is this whole ETA world and just some of the, the challenges associated with it. And, uh, and so I will be covering that. And that was a suggestion by one of the border officers that listens to the podcast. So you know who you are, and thank you very much for that suggestion. Um, and then also, uh, it's... it's <laughs> You know, to get positive feedback that people actually like listening to this, um, that's what gives me the fuel to continue forward. Because obviously, uh, I'm not making any money from this. And in, in actuality, the more people that listen to it, the more the costs are to, to keep it uh, maintained and up and running. And there's a lot of levels to it to make it actually sound good and be worth listening to. But the best yet was uh, a tweet um, that was sent out by, and I'm going to, I'm going to give a shout out to Alex uh, Kondakov. And he indicated in a tweet that he sent out just yesterday, he said, what do you usually listen to when you work out? Question mark. My go-to these days is at Mark Holthy's Canadian Immigration Podcast. An episode's length is just right for running, I'm assuming. So, <laughs> so thank you, Alex. That's very kind. And for all of you who listen... And, uh, and even those uh, of my fine colleagues across the country that agree to come on the podcast, um, I just want to remind everyone that this is not designed for me to enlarge my profile or to expand um, uh, my, uh, my own platform as much as it is to just get awesome lawyers on here to share their insight, to show the world that there are some phenomenal representatives out there that are doing some awesome things in their areas of Canada that are really there to help people. Because let's face it, all of you who are listening, we practice in a real scuzzy area. And we have to wade through an area where people who have no business practicing immigration or representing people are authorized. And with the recent changes uh, that are likely going to be occurring within the consultant ranks and their regulator, uh, obviously those um, those consultative meetings and, and uh, everything that, that has happened in Ottawa and the report that was recently issued. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes about how the regulator ICCRC uh, should be scrapped. Uh, once again, the regulator for a second time, it's hard for us to really stand out when we're trying to do it the right way. And we genuinely care about people. So thank you to all of you who contribute to the podcast in so many ways. I'm excited for the next few episodes that are coming out here. And uh, I want to wish all of you uh, just the very best as you navigate your way through this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Oh, Take care, everyone. Greatest country in the world. We want 
Your 